0: Gracious Father in heaven we want to humble ourselves before you you know that we cannot understand these great and wonderful things except they're spiritually revealed to us and yet Lord you work through our logic you work through the moving of Scripture and the and the understanding of comparing Scripture with Scripture Uh, we pray that Jesus will be here today that He will be in our midst. We're all learning from each other. I thank you for yesterday's session. I picked up some nice things yesterday myself. And so as we go into this study, again, we look to you as our strength and our wisdom. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Okay, she, she asked me a very, very good question. And I got somebody... Um, You're going to have to wait on getting that answer, so let me get back to where I was. I I meant to bring my regular King James, uh, New King James, and for some reason it disappeared. All right, where are we at here? Uh, Let's go to Revelation chapter 4. And she asked a question, where is the Holy Spirit? Um, in my, reg- my regular Bible, I have those texts marked, but I wanted to show you something that I thought was interesting. I'm not, to answer that question, I'm going to go back to chapter 1. Are you with me? Revelation, Revelation chapter 1. We'll start there. And if you run down through there and you start at verse um, verse 4 is correct. And John, I, this is a New American Standard. I usually use the New King James. Um, this is a, it's a good translation. You have to be a little bit more careful with it, but it's a pretty good translation. What I love about the Adventist message that you can pretty well prove it out about any translation that comes up as long as there's any word decently translated. Mm -hmm. I'm not talking about the paraphrases. Um, To John, the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from Him who is, who was, and He who is to come. Who are we talking about here? We're talking about God, I think here, the Father, says who is. Uh, sometimes it says who uh, has been, who is, and who is to come. Here it says who is, who has been, who is to come. So what's that a picture of? It's a picture of the eternalness of, of God the Father.
1: Yeah. But the next verse says, and from Jesus And from
0: Jesus Christ. Um, I, we, you know, everything goes in cycles, and let me. We've had some challenges from some folk who've gotten themselves into um, the anti Godhead. I don't like to use the word Trinity. It's not a bad word. Uh, some fundamental beliefs do it, but Adventist concept of the Godhead is not quite the same as a Catholic concept. Thank you. And we I like the term "godhead" better than I like the word "trinity," but some people have gotten themselves into that, and um it's amazing where where they go um i did a I did a study though on I just went back so I just got to get back into this, not that I had any questions about it, but I just wanted to see I'm telling you the deeper and the better you get into scripture, and the more you run down that, the more powerful. The Godhead is all the way through Scripture. It's just a powerful Amen. picture. Sweat, and,
1: well.
0: Exactly. And un- it undermines the atonement. It undermines the sanctuary. It undermines everything. Okay, so this is the eternalness of the Father. Okay. And from the what? Now, I looked at it and I said, this is, I, said to, I said, Lord, this is odd. I, said, I know the minute I say this, that I know what somebody's going to pop up and say. But I believe that this. Repre- I'll tell you what I believe. Okay, I'm not being dogmatic. and tell you what I what I think. But I believe this represents the Holy Spirit. Yeah. Now somebody will say, "Oh, so do you mean there are seven Holy Spirits?" No. no.
2: It's the attributes of the.
0: I I did go to the Greek and I I looked it up and it's all. I thought, well, maybe it's seven uh, singular spirit, but that would not be grammatically correct even with the Greek, I guess. At at any rate, it is seven spirits. But before a person jumps off and says that's seven spirits, they have to hear the seven churches. And at the end of every church, you hear these words, let him hear what the spirit, and that's singular, says to the churches So the seven, again, is that mysterious thing, but it is also pointing us forward that the Spirit of God is going to speak. And the Holy Spirit is very interesting. That's usually where these people start their attack. They usually start uh, trying to um, say the Spirit of God is not the Spirit of God. But here the Bible over and over and over again pictures three eternal beings. Ellen White, by the way, is unequivocal. It's amazing the kinds of, if, you, if somebody makes up their mind that they want to believe something, they can use every, it's like Sunday. If they want to believe that Sunday, they'll go to the scripture and they'll play every game in the book when the truth is as clear as, as your hand uh, is. Um, I've showed these folk, I said, look, here, here's, the, here's the pictures of the codicils. Codicils are the original things where Ellen White Says so clearly there are three eternal beings, three people that are working for our salvation. I mean, it's just as clear. And you can see there's the typewritten thing. Yes, it's true that her secretary wrote it, but in Ellen White's own handwriting, you have the little corrections that she makes so that she's putting her blessing and she's got the signal where she's signing off on it. But that doesn't phase them. You know, nothing phases them. uh, Kind of a thing.
1: One says that uh, there are three in heaven
0: that Yes, yeah, yeah. The scripture is clear and the spirit prophecy is clear. And, please. I
1: the sanctuary pretty deeply.
0: Yeah, speak up good and loud.
1: When, when it says the seven spirits, look, the golden candlestick has seven lampstands before the throne. That's it's right. on the opposite side of the table of showbread.
0: Yes, yeah. So
1: would that represent... The Holy Spirit as the candlestick. Because you've got to remember, it has seven lampstands.
0: That's right. Mm -hmm. See, what you cannot do with the Holy Spirit, you're very, yes, to be uh, direct. Uh, That's a conclusion that I've reached. But I can't just automatically say that's the only thing that it represents. Because you have the seven churches. And there's oil, and we all know the oil represents the Holy Spirit. If you go to Zechariah chapter 4, and you've got the seven candlesticks, but what keeps the candlestick burning? What is the flame? It's the Holy Spirit moving through the church. So every church that you represent, every one of your churches is a witness, and that witness is made possible by the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is never pictured with a form. Well, you have the dove, but it's also pictured as wind, flame, uh, rain, uh, a dove. It, it's, a, it, it's got multiple pictures because you cannot, def- it is not definable. And our human minds are too... I tell people, so our minds just aren't big enough to comprehend all of this. I accept it by faith because I see it. So when I see, this, when I see the seven spirits linked in with the Father and with the Son, I have, I believe, to answer your question, the, uh, the three, the Godhead. Does that make sense? And, <coughs>
2: excuse me, in Proverbs 8 there are seven characteristics, or seven attributes that describe the Holy Spirit. Yeah. So it fits in very well with the, the seven candlesticks and from across the throne. is he just, yeah. wow, I thank you, I really...
0: Now if you listen to this, look at verse 5 because you've got from Him who is, who was, and who is to come and from the seven spirits and later we will hear the Bible say, the Revelation will say that uh, that is the Spirit of God. You'll hear that uh, later. Uh, and from Jesus, the faithful witness. So there I have all the firstborn of the dead. That's another thing they love to get onto. Um, uh, Christ always has been, always will be. And the fact that He's the only begotten of the Son, the word only begotten means one of a kind, unique. And we don't even understand what that means. It doesn't mean that Jesus had a beginning. There was never a playtime that He had a beginning. But He is unique. Son of his father. Mm-hmm. I don't know what that means. I can't explain it. I don't know that I need to explain it. Mm-hmm. I just think I just need to accept it by faith. Yes. And because when you start tracing the rock, I mentioned this yesterday. If you start in Corinthians, where Paul says that Jesus was the rock and he was the one that was leading Israel in the cloud, and you trace that rock back through the Old Testament, every attribute of God Himself is applied to that rock. Every attribute, all the eternal things that you apply to God who was, is, all those kinds of things. And then in the book of Revelation chapter 4, let me go, I mean chapter 1 here, let me go down to verse 8, just to underline uh, the Savior again. Verse 8 says, I am the Alpha and the Omega who says the Lord. Now notice, now this is the same attribute just applied to the Father earlier who is and who was and who is to come, the what? The Almighty. He applies that to the Alpha and the Omega. And the Alpha and the Omega is obviously Christ uh, Himself. Now, if you go to chapter, talking about, um, go to chapter 4. I've just given you the seven churches and the Spirit, hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And, um It's interesting in chapter 4, verse 2, that as John starts this vision, verse 2 says, immediately, I was in the what? Yeah, it doesn't say I was in Jesus. It doesn't say I was in the Father. I was in the Spirit. Mm -hmm. Uh, It separates that out. And he sees the throne in heaven, one sitting on the throne. That's the Father, the appearance of the Father. If you look, uh, by the way, this is one part. In Revelation 4 that you don't have in Ezekiel 1, verse 4, around the throne are what? 24, 24 thrones and I saw 24 what? Elders. Elders. You don't see those in Ezekiel 1 and I believe that these are the first fruits yes. of the resurrection and these are ever around the throne of God at this point ever reminding the entire host of heaven that God has unfinished business on planet Earth because He's coming to get the rest of us. Um, I don't know who these people are. That don't go out here and say, I said this. Now it's on tape and so I'm in trouble.
2: <laughs>
0: but sometimes I ask myself, who? I wonder who they are. Uh, Ellen White gives in, I can't give you the quote, some that's just in my head, um, but she makes a reference to the fact that these are people who stood for God in the midst of great apostasy and great difficulty. So we don't know who they are. I have wondered, though, if John the Baptist wasn't around there. It, that wouldn't surprise me. If I get there and it's not, but if they get there and it's John the Baptist is there, that's just going, you know, here's a man who, we know what he went through. And that's one of the great mysteries. People's, people had a hard time with the death of John the Baptist. Why, why did not God intervene? And yet down through the centuries, that has been a comfort to a lot of martyrs. You think of the millions of people given their life. If You're called to give your life to Christ for Christ. You die early, you die violently. You can look and say, "Jesus has not forsaken me, he didn't forsake John the Baptist." When she talks about people going through difficult times, she says, "Did God forsake Noah?" And she goes down the thing and says, "Did God forsake John the Baptist?" He did forsake John the Baptist. Yes.
2: Question: Are you saying because the Holy Spirit is here? Because First
0: Chapter Four Verse One says, "I was in the Spirit." I was just—I was just giving that. I was going down the the thing here. I just hadn't got far enough. I was saying that's one of the evidences there that that John is saying that he's in the Spirit is there. But I'm not done there. Let me go down just a little bit uh, further till I—I got off on the f- twenty-four elders and I haven't got to the seven trumpets yet. Okay, here's the one I really wanted. Uh, Verse 5, and out of the throne came flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne. Now in chapter 1 we're told the seven lamps are the seven, notice here, which are the seven spirits of God. Yeah, it's one and the same. So without the Spirit of God, church doesn't exist. The church it's, it's like when you saw the wheels within the wheels. You, uh, in chapter 1 of Ezekiel, it said the Spirit of God was in the wheels and the Spirit of God was in the beings. It's the Spirit of God that's moving. In fact, you're not alive without the Spirit of God making all of us alive. To eat. Yeah. So at any rate, um, it says it's the Spirit of God. There, so anyway, I see there all three of them represented there, so that's what I was saying okay let's go uh let's go into yeah I want to give I want to do uh something that I hadn't shared with you yesterday that I had put together, and I haven't shared this with anybody else before, but at every place that Jesus moves to these To these places of furniture, you see something that's said that's very interesting. And I don't know the total implications of this, but I thought you might enjoy studying it a little bit. When he comes to the lampstands, you can look at Revelation 1 14 to 15. I'm not going to take time to read it. But John there sees the glorified Savior with eyes like a flame of fire. I think some translations will give that like lightning. His eyes are like lightning. And number three, whose voice is the sound of many waters. Often you will hear this say the voice of God sounds like many waters or like the sound of of thunder. Now that's at the the candlesticks, the lampstands. Here is the the throne, table of showbread. I have it in parentheses. We've already discussed that. Revelation 4, verse 5, he sees at that throne flashes of lightning, sounds, and the Bible separates these out, and peals of thunder. This is kind of beginning to build a little bit. That's uh, Revelation 4, 5. That's from the throne, the table shut. Here's the golden altar. We're going to get into that. When you see the golden altar, you see peals of thunder... Sounds, flashes of lightning, and now you have an earthquake. Isn't that interesting? And then, if you went too fast, you mean go back? Revelation eight five. the The text will give it to you. So if you put the text down, it'll give it to you. the The ark of the testimony, when that is open, in Revelation eleven nineteen. You see flashes of lightning, sounds, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and a great hailstorm. Notice the intensity. As Jesus moves through the heavenly sanctuary, the intensity uh, increases. Now, when you get to Revelation 16, now I'm into the seven last plagues. And once again, we get a picture of the Holy of Holies, Revelation 16, 7 to 21 says these are coming out of the um, uh, temple and now you have lightning, sounds, peals of thunder, and you have the greatest of earthquake and the greatest of hailstorms. Anyway, I just thought that was very interesting and so forth. Now yesterday, that's, that's a side trip and you can study, do some study on your own. Um, yesterday I talked about context and how important it is to I'm going to give you a quick review for for yesterday real quick here we need to seek to understand before trying to be understood understanding demands a context problem solving demands a context ignoring the context equals disaster and the launch of an intercontinental ballistic missile is context important Otherwise, the whole world goes up. If you don't understand the context, that they're launching that as a test or whatever, if you don't know the context, they always want to know the context. These guys that are watching the skies all the time, they want to know the context. Uh, six, um, uh, here's an illustration of that. Amazing grace. Now, you, we know the title. It grace that taught my heart to fear. And a lot of people... Um, don't get the neck, or they don't get that part. They don't see the whole piece. And grace, my what? In other words, grace does more than simply relieve my fears. Grace teaches me to fear. That's right. Gives me the whole picture, and so you don't get it out of context. Yes.
2: Uh, one teacher that we listened to one time suggested he makes context king, and
0: he called King Khan. King Khan. Okay. All right. Yes. This is what we're really talking about. God's true character. We can see it in the power. The power of God is so fantastic, we can't understand it. This is why we have these words. That's the only way it can be explained to the human race with human understanding. That's right. So we have to be careful with human praise. Let me tell you why. People say, well, why does God get all that praise? What does praise do to human beings? It changes us, doesn't it? It changes. It's not good for us. It's not good for us. Now that doesn't mean people don't need encouragement and that sort of thing, and that's nice. But praise, you can give your Heavenly Father and the Savior all the praise in the world, and it will never change them. And the reason Jesus is exalted as King of kings and Lord of lords is because He's the humblest human being that's ever lived on the face of the earth. All right. A biblical caution to consider context. This is 2 Peter three fifteen to 16. Just as also our beloved Paul, who according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you, as also in all his letters, speaking on them of these things in which... Some things are what? Hard. Hard to understand. Okay, so he's saying if you just pick this thing out, if you, you can, Paul can mix you up, even though he's inspired. And Then he says, which the untaught and unstable distort as they do the rest of Scripture to their own destruction. So context is important. You want to know what the, the whole picture is there. Okay, um, I put this in here. I'm watching. I think we're okay here. Uh, if you look at the he- earthly sanctuary, and I told you it was like the road map to the heavenly sanctuary, you want to follow the blood uh, sacrifice. So you have the sacrifice in the courtyard. And of course we know all of this points to Christ. So the blood, of course, the lamb points to Christ. And then uh, I ask this question often, how much was Jesus worth? That's a little side trip for a moment. What? That's right. He can, he's worth all of creation, the entire universe. But why is He worth the entire universe? He created it. That's absolutely right. He owns it. So what is greater, the creation or the creator? What is greater, the artist or the art? I know the world mixes that up, but, um, but the creator is worth more. So when Jesus died on Calvary's cross, then he, His blood could count for all of us and more. Because he's worth more than all of us. Okay, that was a little... But that's why that the blood of Christ is important. Okay, so the blood comes from the courtyard and it goes right here to the altar of incense. It's put on those four there as a record that those sins have been acknowledged and the incense is going up. So here's that picture that takes it over here. Am I right? Yeah. But yesterday we learned that when the incense goes up it floods the entire uh, uh, thing. But this is... The presupposition sometimes can help us. You have to test those at times. Okay, and then the blood goes from the altar at once a year. It goes from the altar to where? In the Holy of Holies, the Day of Atonement that we're in right now. And that blood is sprinkled on on here. Um, This is just, uh, again, you can see the outlay here. The blood goes from here to here to here. And if you take the blood of the sacrifice on a daily basis, right there, this is what happened every day, from the altar of burnt offerings, and then it went to the horns of the altar, and the daily cleansing of sin was cared for. Aren't you glad that you can get your sins cared for every day? Then once a year at the Day of Atonement, the blood of the sacrifice went from the altar of burnt offerings to the altar of incense in the holy place, to the horns of the altar of the, I mean, to the mercy seat, the Holy of Holies, and that's the eternal cleansing of sin. Um, why was there a scapegoat? I thought i will throw this in for what it's worth, department, while I'm at it. You know, some people accuse Adventists and say, well, you got the scapegoat. Those, both those goats represent Jesus. They do? Yeah. It does represent Satan and there's a good reason for it. There's no blood shed by that scapegoat. And the and the shedding of blood is what represents Christ. And the other thing that it's settling is who's guilty of starting this whole mess. So if you look around at the universe and you look at the cause of sin with all of its devastation, is that is there a huge accusation here? Who started this mess? Who did this? I mean, this is—that's serious. That's—that's that's a serious, serious charge. You look at the devastation on all of us in the whole world and the universe. Who did this? Well, the first suspect would be. Afraid to say it, aren't you? Huh? huh? Yeah, exactly. For the insurance industry, you're absolutely right. Everything's an act of God, uh, every bad thing. But So the first suspect will be, God, you created everything, so did you create this mess? Uh, and of course, we know the answer to that. God didn't create a devil. He created a very perfect human being who had the power to make a devil out of himself, just like human beings do. But in the final analysis, the universe also wants that answer and the final analysis, when it's all done, God's name will be cleared. And Satan suffers not in an atonement sense for our sins but for his role in our sins. We're also free moral beings. We also have a role and responsibility for our behavior. Yes or no? We believe that. Well Lucifer, he's a free moral being too, so he has to take responsibility but he's the prime mover. He's the guy that started all this stuff. And he has to take responsibility for his role in our sins. And the universe will judge him in the end yeah. with all of that. Okay, that's a little side trip on all of that. But it's important side trip. All right, this is just uh, kind of reviewing. From the time, this is the prophetic uh, picture of the sanctuary. So you have from the fall of man to the cross. I talked about that yesterday, the courtyard. Represents that era. From the cross to the time of the end, from the ascension of Jesus to the close of the 2300 days, 1844. And then from the close of the 2300 days to the second coming is the Holy of Holies. It's all prophetic. And so uh, all fits into that. I shared this a little bit yesterday, but if you go to the candlesticks, you have the prophecy of the seven churches. You go to the... Alt, uh, to the uh, table showbread you get the prophecy of the seven seals from the altar of incense you get the prophecy of the seven trumpets and in the holy of holies when that is opened in chapter 11 verse 19 you get the prophecies of the mark of the beast the seven last plagues the rise of Babylon the rise of the remnant the three angels message Armageddon and the seven last plagues I said that twice alright um, I'm going to skip a little bit of that here, I've talked about the... And now I want to get into the... Okay. Now, let's talk about the seven trumpets here. If you got your Bibles and you're following along Revelation 8, verse 1, you know where we're at. You know where we're at in the prophetic time period. Uh, so we're in that holy uh, place. And I saw seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. Revelation 8, uh, 1. You'll... F- what did I say? It should be two. Two. Okay, I, I need to make that correction. All right, Revelation 8.2. Thank you. Trumpets were blown uh, many times in the Bible to sound an alarm. Symbolically, they were used to announce judgment. Here's a text. Joel 2 1 blow a trumpet in Zion and sound a what? An alarm. An alarm. For the day of the Lord is coming. And it pictures him coming in the day of judgment. So sound the alarm, uh, blow the trumpet, sound the alarm, the day of the Lord is coming. Yes, in the back. Speak up nice and loud so i helps pick up here.
1: Uh, the one thing I was going to say on Joel chapter 2, verse 1, says blow a trumpet. Mm-hmm. It should be blow the trumpet because for one reason. Okay. During the time of the blowing of the trumpets for like the Jubilee or the 10 days before the Day of Atonement, yeah. it had to be a specific silver trumpet. The only reason I know that is because going into it and listening to the uh, 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 Griffin, Dane Griffin yes. and going through all the sanctuary materials he was making a very distinction about that and I'm just that's
0: very interesting uh, and that's something I need to get a little bit more uh, we know about the shofar which is the horn of a ram's horn but they also had silver trumpets that they made that had certain distinct sound very in the
1: Talmud it talks about they used a silver trumpet right. when they blew before because it would made a very distinctive
0: sound. Trumpets, when a trumpet blows, a trumpet gets your attention. Am I right? Yes. Uh, that, that's a general it will get your attention because it's loud, it's shrill, it's got a powerful sound to it. And so anyway, let's look at some other things. Note the parallels of this one. I found this one to be very interesting. This is out of Joshua and the fall of Jericho. Uh, you know the story well, but let's just look at it here. Joshua 6, Four, six, and twenty. Joshua six, four, six, and twenty. And the Lord said to Joshua, "See, I have given Jericho into your hand. And seven priests shall bear seven trumpets. Take up the ark of the covenant, and let seven priests bear seven trumpets." That's repeated of ram's horn. In this case, is a shofar. Before what? The ark of the Lord. So the people shouted when the priests blew the trumpets. Now you know the story, so I don't have to recount the story. But that's a very fascinating picture. What were they blowing these horns for? What were they marching seven times around this place for? Why were they giving it a week? Suppose there were any more Rahabs in that city? God is announcing ahead of time that He's about ready to do something. They know that He has just dried up the Jordan River in flood stage, and the whole host of Israel have marched along. These people are really scared. They, there's plenty of signs that something is bigger and powerful. This would have been a great time to repent in sackcloth and ashes and thrown and, you know, gone out and said, Look, we want to make peace. We will destroy our idols. We'll get rid of all these kind of things. But that didn't happen, did it? Yeah, the only one that escaped there was Rahab. All right, well, you can think about that. But let me, let me look at the, some of the parallels here. Seven priests blow seven trumpets seven days before the Ark of the Covenant. Two, this was carried each day by encircling the city. Three, the blowing of these horns announced the coming judgments of God on Jericho. And four, when by the power of God, the city walls fell flat, The city was turned into ashes and was not to be rebuilt. In fact, there was a curse announced on the person who would rebuild Jericho. He would lose both of his sons in that endeavor. (coughs) Number five, the seven trumpets represent God's judgments on the enemies of His church. And I think that's... uh, People sometimes think, well, God's judgments wait till the end of time. No, God's judgments are already in the land. And God does bring judgments. We maybe not see it just automatically sometimes, but God's judgments are already in the land. Now, it's not the final judgment. The final We'll see the final judgment in this. But He's saying that God is going to judge the enemies of His church. I will tell you this. If God doesn't judge the enemies of His church, if He doesn't hold them back, if He doesn't turn them around, the church will cease to exist. And you will see that uh, as we get through the seven trumpets. God has held His hand over His church and He has turned back our enemies many, many times and made it possible for the church to exist. Um, If Hitler had won World War II, if the Japanese had won World War II, what do you think would have happened to Christianity? Yeah, you can imagine. Aren't you glad you're not living in Hitler's world? Are, what if the Muslims had taken over all of Europe? Aren't you glad you're not living in that world?
1: Daniel Morgan said that will never happen.
0: Mm. But what happens is that God moves in human history. If you look at the, the um, if you like history, if you look at, at did I mention this yesterday? I hope I, Maybe I mentioned it Friday night. I don't know, somewhere. I do too much talking sometimes. <laughs> Keep track of every, all your thoughts. But if you, if you look at the United States, I think I mentioned this Friday night, the United States was not prepared for World War II. It was not prepared. And um, if you look at the first 24 hours of Franklin D. Roosevelt, um, and Franklin D. Roosevelt was sharing his frustrations, his concerns, his fears, he was basically saying to this individual, the United States has one battalion that's combat ready, one. Hitler had 200. And the Japanese had 100. If they had known that, one could have come from the east coast, the other could have come from the west coast, it had been all over. In fact, he said he didn't think if the Japanese had just kept rolling on, the empire had rolled on to the west coast, that It would have taken us till Chicago. They'd been to Chicago before we'd ever got them stopped. I think I shared that Friday night. So this prepared thing, uh, God God does move. Now, it's interesting that if you go to the Battle of Midway, that was after Pearl Harbor. That was, uh, it's a horrible thing. It's a horrible scene. But it all turned on five minutes. In five minutes, the whole Pacific War turned. In five minutes, three Japanese aircraft uh, aircraft carriers went down, and that was after they had slaughtered every um, torpedo bomber that uh, our carriers had launched, destroyed every last one of them. But while they were busy down there, they didn't know about the ones up there, and those guys came out of the clouds. And of course, you can. But in five minutes, the whole thing turned. It's amazing. And and the empire of Japan was never able to gain the the initiative again. That turned the whole thing. And what it did is it bought the America um, uh, industrial machinery, time, and uh, and of course the rest is history. <laughs> judgments, God's judgments are uh, are at work. So. Um, When the trumpets finish blowing, the enemies of God's church are destroyed by the power of God. Uh, You see, the last part of the trumpets is the cities of the nations fail, and the earth and all that is, is burned up. Why? Because the cities of the nations in the end of time become the enemies of God's church. The whole world becomes the enemy of God's people. The whole world colludes together to destroy God's people. That's what the Mark of the Beast is all about. It's just a recapitulation, if you please, of Mordecai and Esther and that whole story. Um, uh, you know, Hitler's de- desire to wipe out all the Jewish people. God wasn't going to let that happen. In fact, I think one, because if he had been allowed to wipe out the Jewish people, he would have wiped out the fulfillment of the prophecies. Now, somebody said, well, isn't the church the new Israel? Yes, that's true. But God is not yet finished with the Jewish people. And I don't believe the Zionism. I'm time to get into all of that. But uh, read uh, Romans chapter 7. No. Yeah. uh, No. uh, Romans chapter 11. It rhymes with seven. (laughs) It's an old age, you know. uh, And you'll, you'll find that, you know, God does a special work in the end of time. He all will be saved in the tree of faith in Christ Jesus. When I say all, both Gentiles and Jews who choose to believe. Okay, let me, let me get back here. So let's go on. Let's go to verse 3 to 5. I hope I've got the verses right this time. I think I do. So this is another angel. I talked yesterday that I believe that this angel, not a created being, is representative of Christ. This is a picture of Christ. came, and because of the intercession, inter, intercession that's going on, came and stood at the altar holding a golden censer and much incense was given to him so that he might add it to the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar which is before the throne. I talked about that some yesterday, so I'm not going to... But it's one of the most beautiful pictures in the book of Revelation. I, I will say this, though. God's judgments do respond to the prayers of God's people. So as God's people are crying out under oppression, God hears His children. He's not deaf to our cries. And the smoke of the incense, the prayers of the saints, went up before God. That's telling you that God the Father hears those prayers through Christ as the intercessor out of the, uh, went up before God, out of the angel's hand. Now there's a response. Evidently, between this line and this line, there is a response. God evidently gives permission. God says, yes, do this. Now notice, the angel took the censer and filled it with the fire of the altar. What is the fire of the altar? The fire of the altar is the judgment. Why does the fire burn up the sacrifice? Why did the cross consume Jesus? There's, there's judgment involved here. Um, we look at the cross of Christ and people don't, sometimes they don't talk about this. We have, we have some emphasis at times in the Adventist church that are very worrisome. There are people who say, you know, God, uh, Jesus was not really a sacrifice. Yeah. Oh yeah, if you haven't heard that, it's a it's a big deal in certain places. And I'm not going to start naming them, but I'll just... Your, your antennas can go up when you hear it. They say God is so good and so kind that uh, a God of love would never sacrifice His Son. Uh, they say God's not mean. Would you sacrifice... You know, you can hear the... The the stuff going on there, um, I see your hand. Let me come to it in just a minute, um, but but let me just let me just come back on that just a moment. The reason God gave up Jesus, by the way, was not forced to come here. He didn't have to pay the price. In fact, God gave him the opportunity at, right at at Gethsemane. Jesus says. I have six legions of angels that can deliver me at any moment that I ask for it. Those are my words. But I've got, the Father has set aside six legions of angels and they're all girded for war. They could have wiped out the whole Jewish nation like that. There wouldn't have been anybody left. Six legions. One angel could have taken care of the human beings and the rest of them would have taken care of the devil and his evil angels. So Jesus did not have to go to Calvary's cross. At Gethsemane, He said, If it's your will, I'll drink it, but won't you deliver me? And the answer was no. Even Jesus had the Father say no to Him. Yeah, you get get right to it. There's no way to atone for sin because sin has to be uh, God has two attributes you see all the way through and in in, in, uh, hold together, and that is justice and mercy. Justice and mercy both come from the love of God. Both of them come from the love of God. So sin requires judgment. Why? Why does God have to require judgment for sin? He has to wipe it out of the universe because he's a responsible God. And sin destroys the universe. Sin destroys like a snake. Why do you kill a snake if it's around your kids? Why do you kill a snake? I know all the whatevers. But if if a rattlesnake, you know, crawls in where there's little kids or big kids or big people and it's a threat... Any good man that's got any uh, responsibility is going to kill it. Get rid of it. Am I right? You're not going to sit there and let it bite your kids. That's what sin has done to the universe. So the whole universe says, God, you've got to wipe out sin. And the only way you can wipe out sin is to wipe out the sinner. Because it's the sinner that produces the I saw two hands. Just hang on. I'll come to you. So you got, um, so God's judgment has to do that. But God is not only just. God could have wiped out the unit, I mean, could have wiped out this world and been just. But God is not only just. He's also merciful. But not indulgent mercy. Not, in- that, not indulgent mercy. That says okay, It's okay. It doesn't matter. No, God is merciful because God pays the price Himself. And here's the essence of Christianity that the moral influence folk don't get. And it's found when God says God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself, it is God in Christ sacrificing Himself to His own justice and thereby setting us free. That is the essence of the gospel. That is the heart of the gospel. So God's justice and mercy, you behold it at the cross, and you behold it in all of its power. I love going to the cross and studying the cross. Thank God for the cross. The cross always includes a resurrection. Amen. The reason it includes the resurrection is because you can't keep a perfect man in the grave. It's against the law of the universe. All right, I saw a hand right over here.
2: It's probably a dumb question, but how, how far can some Adventist churches go against our doctrine and still be an Adventist church? In- <laughs> in- in- preach so-, so things good. that are contrary to what we believe in. <clears throat> in-, <clears> throat> throat>
0: throat> in- um, now you change the subject. It, it, I said that Swan because it's a, it's a hard question. It's not an easy question. And I understand the question. But sometimes we have to be patient. And the Adventist church is not just, even though some people think, it's not just top down. Elder Wilson just can't just, he can't just walk in here and say, you know what, this church needs to go, so it's off. No, there's a body of Christ. And that body has to act. Um, the Adventist Church is both top down and bottom up, but at some point, some point it will come to a crisis, and that's why there's going to be a shaking. I don't like the concept, but it's there. Spirit of prophecy is very clear about it. Jay Gallimore didn't come up with that. My prayer is, Lord, when that shaking comes, shake us in, not out. Amen. She's very clear that there are going to be company after company that will leave us. And and some of our worst enemies will be lights that we have admired for their brilliance. You're going to have to know why you believe what you believe. And right now, we got a lot of wheat and tares growing together. But at some point, God will sort it out But We'll just have to wait for that time. Now, to be fair, I can't. I saw your hand. I'll come over there. That. That's the best answer I've got right now.
1: <clears throat> On the first 5 where it's talking about the angel took the seats and the to all through
0: yeah, speak up nice and loud. <clears throat>
1: I'm trying to understand that verse because it, when it says, that if you to the earth with voices and thunderings and lightnings and an earthquake, what did it represent when you said... um where did it? What trans- time period of judgment was this taking place? When he said he threw this in, there's a significance to this. I don't know. I always wanted to understand what that meant.
0: The significance is that this fire that's being thrown to the earth and produces all of this action on earth uh, is being is going to be fulfilled in these seven trumpets over the time period of Christian history. So this is the Lord telling John. John, you know, he starts out, uh, if you heard uh, uh, Dr. Sorkey's 11 o'clock meeting, which I was blessed by, uh, he pointed out that right from the get-go, John, in in chapter 1 of Revelation, John says, I'm your fellow brother, uh, fellow servant, in tribulation. And so this is God's answer to that. He's saying John, in fact, he took you through the first... Uh, how many chapters there, the first 13 chapters in a er- survey in cha- uh, at, at, at 11 o'clock, and he showed how the church was getting hit, 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 hit. In other words, we're taking blow after blow after blow after blow. And then you see the intervention of God. So the church is going to take blow after blow and God says it's not going to be just the church doing blow. I'm coming back with some blows of my own because if I don't, the church will not be able to survive. But it doesn't mean that we're going to escape tribulation. So this fire, thunder, lightning, earthquake, all of those things are going to be found in the seven trumpets in God's judgments against the forces of darkness. Now the great controversy theme is going to be played in the seven trumpets because you have Satan and his evil angels and the confederacies that they control. And their one purpose is to counteract everything that God has done, everything that He's promised, and all the prophecies. And they're trying to overthrow that with the kingdoms of the world, the nations of the world, the movements of the world, political movements, they're trying to counter that, and God is saying, yeah, go right ahead, do that, but I'm coming back. I'm going to blow back. And you're going to see that in the trumpets.
1: Okay, so that's in the timeline of the trumpets. What part of the timeline of the trumpets does that represent? That, in that particular?
0: Part? Well, this represents the whole entire timeline of the that's trumpets. The whole yes, because oh, okay. this is the prelude. The prelude tells you this is why you see what you see in the trumpets. The prayers of the saints, God saying, "Yes," and here's the result on the earth. Yeah. Yes, please.
2: Uh, when the fire cast down to earth? Yes. Isn't the imagery that Jesus as a high priest when he's done with his intercession, he's throwing out the uh, fire from the most holy place is done with the intercession. So isn't it like that when fires cast down that there's no more intercession instead thinking that it's the Christian era or the seven trumpet judgments.
0: The judgments of God uh, end up there but they don't start there because we're dealing with all of Christian history and when we go through the trumpets, we'll see this great controversy going back and forth. So it's true that when you finally get down to it, there comes a place that's the final judgment and it's over. But in the meantime, there's I am judgment. Not getting the
2: connection is to most holy place that Jesus is interceding. Uh, while it's interceding, there's a Christian Europe. But when he cast down his fire... But then seven trumpets blows. so how can it be seven trumpets is a Christian era? That's, I'm not
0: getting that. Okay, let me, do you get her question? Her question is, is how are the seven trumpets part of the entire Christian era or, or time period? Um, and the answer to that is, and I think because you mentioned that that he was interceding in the most holy place, he's not in the most holy place. He's in the holy place of the sanctuary. In this picture. He's in the holy place of the sanctuary. It's a very important point because there's some folk that have been con- confused and they take the seven plagues and they try to take the seven trumpets and equate them. But the seven plagues come out of the holy of holies. The seven trumpets come out of the holy place. And since we have... The, the sanctuary is prophetic and we know that the holy place uh, time period is from the ascension to the um, finish of the 2300 day period, then those trumpets are operating during that time period, as I said yesterday, with the section of the sixth trumpet transitions you into the final trumpet, which is the end of time. So they these trumpets, like the seven seals, like the seven, the seven seals, the seven trumpets, and the seven churches, all cover Christian history from the time of Christ to the coming of Jesus.
2: Well, my confusion is this verse, chapter eight, verse two through five. Okay. Is the imagery of Jesus as a high priest interceding for us in heaven when he cast the fire down to earth. Then His intercession is done. And then seven
0: trumpet comes after that. Now I, I think so, that, that imagery, I think you're, you're taking that and pushing it over into the Holy of Holies. Because what you have here, listen, listen to the logic here from the text. The text is Jesus' intercessor. He's, he's not in the Holy of Holies. He's in the holy place. And the prayers of the saints are coming up. Why are the prayers of the saints coming up? Because the saints are under tribulation. They're under difficulty. And they're praying for help and for relief, not only just for forgiveness. So those prayers are coming up. God answers those prayers and He throws down this fire from the altar and that fire then is going to be played out in seven trumpets, which will include the seven last plagues. But this are seven trumpets that include God's activity in the great controversy all over the entire Christian era. You'll see that as we get into it. <laughs> see me after and we'll talk a little bit more. Okay, right in the back.
2: It even goes, I, I see what points she's making, because sometimes in Revelation it, it kind of goes over and over. The chapter before that talks about the ceiling of the hundred and forty-four thousand, it kind of continues on, and maybe they didn't break it may fit in breaking up right, but it kind of continues on into the next chapter. And mm-hmm. it says he's throws down the center. Usually, what I found in Revelation is when it starts talking about the seven trumpets and when it talks about the seven churches, it it is a breakdown of The ages, but he does that over and over and over again, giving you a closer picture. Is it possible that the beginning of chapter 8 is finishing what was the end of chapter 7?
0: No, I don't think so. I think there's a real honest break because what you have is the principle again of repeat in large. You have seven churches, you have seven trump seals, and you have seven trumpets. They all cover the same period. Uh, in the prophetic thing, but, but they emphasize something different in each one. And what's really, really important, and I said this yesterday, is that you always, you don't take the seven trumpets out of the context of the first compartment of the sanctuary. And this is where the confusion often happens. People pick that up and they put the seven trumpets in the Holy of Holies and it doesn't belong there. The minute you do that, you get you get some real confusion. Yeah, I guess. All right, um, and then I've got to. I'm going to continue on here. Go ahead.
1: Have been
2: puzzled if we the seals and prophets are holy plates. Am I catching that?
0: That's where they start. Underline the word start.
2: We believe the sixth and seven are not holy plates. Correct. So they aren't. So, are we turning yet?
0: Okay, no, no. Underline the word start. It's where they start. The seven plagues, not seven plagues, sorry, erase that. Seven trumpets, the seven seals, the seven churches, all start in the holy place, starting with the ascension of Jesus. And they last all the way to the end of time. They include the final scenes in the Holy of Holies. They include the entire Christian era. But there's a transition that you go into from the holy place to the most holy place. And that transition in each one of those sets of repeat and enlarge are always found in the sixth church, the sixth seal, and the sixth trumpet. It's where they start because the seven plagues do not start in the holy place. The seven plagues are all start out of the holy of holies.
2: ask, what's important? Where is the
0: It is in the holy place. All right, I saw somebody's hand here.
1: I was just going to say, when it that verses two to five were looked at as a synoptic prelude rather than a singular event. Yes. And so, in a synopsis, here is the work of God during the time period of church history in three verses.
0: Correct. Okay. Well said.
1: It's not that these are the seven trumpets or the seven seals, but it's the prelude to the seven trumpets. And it's saying, here's how God is working during this time period in His intercession from the holy place all the way to the most holy place.
0: That's right. He said it very nice. He uses the word synoptic. In other words, it is the prelude. It is the, it is the summary of what's about to happen. And it's going to be expressed through seven trumpets. Okay. All right. Good questions, though. That's all right. See me. We'll, we'll talk some more. All right. Let's go to... Uh, watching the time here. and I lost my clicker. There it is. All right. Let's, uh, let's go on here. This is... Uh, I've already done this a little bit. Here, Jesus, at the candlesticks, he appears as high priest. First compartment of the sanctuary. At the table showbread, He appears as the what? All right. And at the ta- altar of incense, He appears as the one who intercedes. Yeah. Okay, I'll work on that. Yeah, it should be on the south, uh, north side. Yeah. But the, you get the point. My point is that you see Jesus in three different pictures. And this is the start of His heavenly ministry. So that means that all of this is going, as long as Jesus is officiating in the heavenly sanctuary, all of this is going to help His church. Isn't that good news? But what you don't do is you don't take the candlesticks and put them in here, into the Holy of Holies. You don't take the table of showbread and start it in here. You don't take the altar of incense and start it in here. But this is where a lot of people get confused because they see seven trumpets and they see the judgments and they think about the seven plagues and so they pick this up and start this in here too. And then you're, then you're out of context. Then, you, then you're going to have a problem. Okay.
1: Isn't there also a um, certain equipment which goes with, uh, with the incense into the world the most holy place?
0: Okay, say that again. I'm I'm not quite sure I followed your question.
1: There's a, there's a certain uh, device with a which has incentive, the incense.
0: Yeah, the censer.
1: Yeah, as the censer, yeah.
0: Okay.
2: It goes into the Holy okay. into the most Holy place.
0: Yes, this is, um, the priest will, uh, the priest carries a censer. Uh, this is called the altar of incense. Uh, but on the Day of Atonement, He will also carry a censer into to this. But that's flooding the whole compartment with the presence of Jesus. Yes. Okay, let's, uh, let's go on. Just trying to keep those pictures straight. All right. Babylon has been the great enemy of God's people in the Old Testament. Would you agree with that? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Revelation picks up the name Babylon and uses it as a symbol of the enemy of the Christian church. Is that fair? Okay, we're all there. The early church understood Rome to be the new Babylon. Here's 1 Peter 5:1, "She who is in Babylon, elect together with you, greet you." The truth is that that there was no Babylon in Peter's time that was occupied. And that's because the Christian church viewed Rome as Babylon. Okay? I'm just trying to make sure that we're all together on that. That's First Peter 5.1. Doesn't say that? I should have brought my little piece of paper here. Correct line. Try second Peter. No, there's no second Peter five. It is in Peter though, I will tell you that. Somebody find Okay. First Peter five thirteen. First What did I say? One. Okay. Left off the three. Left off the three. Okay, I just made a note to myself to fix that. Okay, so she who's in Babylon, that's really wrong elect together and greet you. The early church understood that. Now this is important. Now I, I'm assuming that, uh, I'm making some assumptions here, and one of the assumptions that I'm making is that most of you, if some of you are not, then get a hold of me and I'll try to help you with that or find some way to help you. I'm assuming that most of you know the great basics of Daniel 7, Revelation 13, and those kinds of things. So I'm making that assumption in here, so I'm going more to the the heart of things. Rome, in both its pagan and papal phases, has proven to be the great enemy of God's faithful church over the last 2,000 years. That's just kind of cutting right to the heart of it, and that's right where it's at. And let me ask a question. Does Rome last the entire... Christian Error. So God's judgments are going to last the entire time. If God didn't intervene with the judgments, faithful church would be gone. So the trumpets announce God's judgments on Rome, both pagan and papal phases we will see that without those judgments, Bible truth would have perished from the earth. This is Psalm 103, verse 6. Double check, make sure I'll I'll make a (laughs) note here. More typos. The Lord executes righteousness and justice for how many? Who are oppressed. So does God's judgments wait till the end of time? Do they wait till the seven last plagues? Yeah. Or are God's judgments already in the land? They are yeah, already the land. they're already in the land. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to what? Angry. But abounding in mercy. But it does mean that He has what? Anger. That's judicial anger. Okay. <laughs> Why, really? I knew I should have had my wife go over that. It's
1: 6 and 8.
0: Oh, it's 6 and 8, okay. Alright, whoever's listening on here, they'll have fun. Alright, so, but God does have anger. It's not, it's not anger like it's just capricious anger. It is judicial anger like that of a judge, for instance. God is sovereign over the universe. Uh, If you go back to the Civil War, Abraham Lincoln, I think, got this. Somebody can't come to him and said, I, uh, you know, we hope that God is on our side. Of course, both sides thought God was on their side. And Abraham Lincoln replied that God's not on anybody's side, that He's sovereign, these are my words, that He's sovereign in the universe and that He will bring about justice. Ellen White said in that civil war that for every lash of a whip on a slave, God required the lash of a sword. Those are my words. And that's still, I was reading not long ago some of the history. They, they think now that there were as many as 700 or more casualties They thought maybe five to six hundred, but I think now there's seven hundred, eight hundred casualties in the Civil War. Yeah, did I say, I meant seven hundred thousand, yeah. Seven to eight hundred. And that may be true. The way they did, they went back and started taking the census of that. And most of those deaths were in the South. So he is... Lord our God, His judgments are in all the land, uh, are in all the land, are the earth. Psalm 105, 7. All right, so the trumpets are divided in two groups. And when you look at the trumpets, that's easy to see. Can you see that easily? Uh, if you look at the trumpets, you can just see the first four. And then the angel comes in and says, Whoa, 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 and takes the last three. So they're divided into two groups kind of like the seals. The seals are also divided into four horse seals and then you have the last three. The trumpets are divided uh, and the emphasis on the last three uh, so to speak. Each of these, each meaning pagan Rome and papal Rome or religious Rome each are judged by something like himself. Have you ever noticed that God does that Whatsoever a person sows, that shall what? God is not mocked. And people often bring on themselves the very thing that they oppressed other people with. All right, here is a good stopping place. So tomorrow I will start with the first trumpet. I don't want to start the first trumpet. I've got uh, two uh, and a half, three minutes left. So... Any of you have any more questions before I bind this off? Yes, sister.
2: uh,
0: What you're going to see here is the first four trumpets are going to be God's judgments on pagan Rome. And then you're going to see the last three trumpets. And notice my language here. This is more precise. You're going to see God's judgments on religious Rome because there's more than just papal Rome being judged here. We'll, we'll, we'll get into that. Yes? I'm sorry. The previous slide, right? Yes, yeah, sure. I'll go back. I'll go back. The trumpets are divided into two groups. First, on Imperial Rome, the last three of God's judgments on apostate Christian Rome. Yes. All right. You, you're great class. Thank you for the questions, and I'm happy for those. If somebody wants to stay by and ask a little bit more, I'm happy to do that. But we will get into uh, this tomorrow, starting with the first trumpet. Can we just bow our heads for benediction? Okay, we're going to... We're gonna have the benediction, let's bow our heads. Gracious Father in heaven, thank you again for your word. We pray to understand these things. Give us wisdom from above. And thank you, heavenly Father, for the revelation of Jesus, for the spirit of prophecy, for these things that we understand. And help us to take courage that you are in charge. You will bring this to a conclusion in Jesus' name, amen.